Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Midwest Football Podcast, your home for analytical coverage of the NFL's upper Midwest teams. That means the Bears, Bengals, Browns, Colts, Lions, Packers, Steelers, and Vikings. I'm Joe Smith, published sports journalist, coming to you from the worst drafting sports city in North America, Detroit, Michigan. Here's my friend, co-host, and a professional data analyst in his own right, Brian Rosenquist. Why, hello, Midwestlanders and friends. We got a special episode for you guys today. We've made it all the way to episode lucky 13. So today is going to be all about curses from mostly the Midwest and a little bit other stuff sprinkled in. But before we get too much into the details, I'm going to say this is the last of our kind of random off-season episodes. After this week, we're going to be following an actual operating rhythm. We are going to be starting with camp previews. Two at a time, we are going to be doing an AFC team and an NFC team, and we are going to have a special guest on each one of them. We are starting with Detroit-Pittsburgh next week, and then Packers-Bengals, and the Colts, Vikings, and we will finish with the Bears and the Browns leading right into the Browns playing in the Hall of Fame game. After that, we will be doing a fantasy preview in August, and then we'll be right into the regular season. So should be fun. Thank you for joining us today on the Midwest Football Podcast. We're recording on Monday, July 3rd, and this is Lucky Episode 13. Usually we record on Tuesdays, but that's the 4th of July holiday, which is for our non-American listeners, that's our Independence Day major holiday. With the holiday weekend, not really a big news week for the NFL, we decided to revisit in a big way a segment we did way back in episode one, and that's Midwest Horror Stories. In this lucky 13th episode, we are taking an in-depth look at some of the football-related curses that have bit our Midwest teams. Not even the Steelers and Packers are immune. What we offer is catharsis. The nation at large just does not understand the depth of the torment our teams have put us through. Some of us for an incredibly long period of time. So, while our intent is to entertain and perhaps heal some heartbreak, we are going to be discussing a lot of very unhappy events in this episode. You have been warned. That being said, the menu this episode includes the famous Madden curse, which has struck many teams in the region. We'll talk about a uh, variety of unfortunate happenings from the Minnesota Vikings. I know that last week we promised to discuss the Cleveland sports curse in this episode, but when we did the research, we felt there's so much to that one that it deserves its own episode. Don't worry, we didn't cut it because we didn't think it was important. It's such a big deal, we wanted to give it the time it deserves. That leaves Detroit's curse of Bobby Lane as our main event for the evening. It's been responsible for such torment of Lions fans that you, gentle listeners, will be shocked and amazed at what you hear. We can't even get to all of the many great and terrible college curses, such as what I learned of this week, the angry Iowa running back hating God curse affecting the Iowa Hawkeyes program over the last 20 years. (laughs) That's right. Ask a Hawkeye and they'll tell you that God hates Iowa running backs. However, we're going to start with the one big news story of the weekend, and that is, speaking of the 13th, major job cuts at ESPN, including in some of the football coverage. So that was the one big news story over the 4th of July weekend, or week, I should say, leading up to it, was... um, 
happy birth of the country. You guys are looking for new jobs at ESPN. And there was a lot of major names lost uh, from ESPN, including Jeff Van Gundy, Susie Colbert, Jalen Rose, my, my, my man, Keyshawn Johnson, including Ashley Brewer, who was one week away from her wedding when she got fired. So uh, happy nuptials, I guess, from Mickey Mouse and ESPN. Crew. <sighs> That's rough timing. I mean, it's similar to when the Bills fired their coach on Christmas Eve. So, I mean, it happens. <laughs> Apparently, the Grinch is a Bills owner. (laughs) I mean, I get that the mouse is hemorrhaging money, and I really feel like there's a reckoning in sports broadcasting coverage because at this point, we've got so many people spending their television viewing money in so many different directions that the money is not there the way that ESPN could just force every cable subscriber in the world to use them for so long. So they're going to have to cut some some coverage here. Yeah, and a lot of it is the uh, there's extra competition due to the internet and stuff. Like, I mean, like when you think about it, like when we were in college, the ESPN or the Sports Center top ten was what did we all sat around looking for? But now you can just pull up the highlights on TikTok and YouTube and stuff. There's even more people too. Like I miss a lot of the, uh, football people or football podcasts. Matt Hasselback, Steve Young, both former NFL quarterbacks. Todd McShay, the draft guy. I mean, we spent a lot of our early podcasts talking about the NFL draft, and he's he's gone. So, I mean, he'll, he'll probably be snapped up yeah. quickly. Yeah, I have to believe he will be because he's legitimately one of the best. It's going to be interesting because I do think that part of this, when I look at this list, I think what ESPN did was they started thinking that people wanted to watch their channel for the sports personalities and I think it's live sports is really just more about the live sports. And it's an interesting thing because live sports are super valuable as we see, because everything else is TVOable or streamable, et cetera. So when you're trying to get NFL rights or NBA or whatever, it's very expensive. But I think necessarily talking about sports, I mean, we have two people right here in our living rooms talking about it that are in competition with these people, even if we only pick off one listener at a time. (laughs) Yeah, to your point, it's been probably 10 years now where live sports is basically the last thing that we as Americans watch live. We don't really watch the news live. We get it on the internet when we feel like reading it. We don't really watch TV live or movies. Everything is streamable. Just ask the movie studios. We're not going to the movie theaters very much. But sports... The reason that they are paying ludicrous amounts of money for sports coverage is because it's the one thing that they can make people watch commercials for. I was going to say, I get most of my news from just random banner alerts on my phone. <laughs> yeah, And uh, just in general, ESPN has that going against them. But I also do think there's some of their own self-inflicted wounds because I think they have a lot of talking heads and most of them just kind of regurgitate whatever is the popular opinion at the time. And I don't feel like they offer a lot of insight. My personal take is that I usually listen to ESPN when it comes time for draft prep, because I can find out what the average people are doing for their draft rankings. So I can kind of get an idea of the draft list, and then I can overlay my smarter people's draft lists and look for the deals. <laughs> right. You mean fantasy draft? Yeah, fantasy draft. Not exactly a compliment towards ESPN, in my opinion. Yeah, the one thing that amazed me, as I kind of smirk sideways into the microphone here, the one thing that amazed me about all these cuts is that somehow Desmond Howard still has a job. 
um, guess go blue for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if you, I mean, if you ever look at some of his freezing cold takes. Hey, if I had to choose between a Michigan alumni to keep their job, it would be easily Jalen Rose. He's awesome. Yeah, I don't have a problem with Jalen Rose, and I'm OSU alumnus. Same. Now, I'm not saying every one of the athletes that hit the pavement was a genius. I'm not sure how much Hasselbeck and Steve Young added to the broadcast, but it does seem like a disproportionate amount of their experienced news reporters and analysts were targeted here. Mm. And that is unfortunate. Speaking of unfortunate, let's start our uh, Midwest football ghost tour with the Windy City. Brian, how do Bears fans explain the last 40 years of dire results on the field? Well, let's let's go back real quick before I before I get to the curse. The Bears are a very proud franchise. Most people alive today would not know it because the Bears last won a Super Bowl in 1985, technically the 86 year, which we still talk about all the time. And it cracks me up because the Bears if you look at the overall history, it's like winning his franchise, tons of championships, but it all happened before 1986, technically 85, whatever. We always say 85 bears, right? Um, and around that time, the bears had a uh, short lived cheerleading squad called the honey bears. Most people in Chicago will say that the bears have not won the super bowl since they got rid of the honey bears. And, they got rid of them. It was around when um, George Hallis, Papa Bear, passed away and passed the team off to current owner, matriarch Virginia McCaskey, his daughter. She decided she did not want to keep the cheerleading squad um, because it was, um, quote unquote, you know, misogynist. But most people in Chicago just believe that the McCaskey family is just really cheap and just didn't want to pay extra overhead for something like that when they knew the fans would come anyways. So technically, the Honey Bears were dissolved in January 26th of 1986, which I forget when exactly the 85 Bears Super Bowl was, but that was probably days afterwards, to be honest, because that was, you know, early 86. And so what was interesting about it is here's here's the claim for the curse of the Honey Bears. The Bears, as of, well, now, have gone 5-11 and in the postseason since this curse, and three, 33. 1% winning percentage. During the squad's tenure, they were four and three with a Super Bowl, 500 winning percentage. And it's funny because even like the winning percentage during the span, they were 82 and eight and 67. Um, and then bef- the eight years before they created it, they were winning 30% of their team. So a lot of people might attribute Mike Ditka to turning around the Bears, but a lot of people think it was the Honey Bears. They they turned them into a good team, and then they got rid of them, and they never won the Super Bowl since, and they've been coasting on the laurels. Uh, it's interesting because there's been attempts by Bears fans to bring them back, and whenever they pull them, uh, they've always averaged about a 3-to-1 ratio, 75% people for bringing the squad back. But uh, Virginia McCaskey has vowed to never do it on while, uh, while she's alive, which she is 100 years old. I'm not exaggerating. That might not be long. But her sons, Mike and George, have vowed to keep her anti-cheerleading sta- uh, stance when they inherit the team. And even their grandkids have echoed this. Uh, her grandkids have echoed this uh, sentiment. So Bears fans, don't get excited if um, Virginia passes away that we might see some uh, Honey Bear re- revival. I don't think that's going to happen unless the uh, sons decide to sell the team. 
But hey, the one thing we will always remember about Mike McCaskey was the moment his mom, his own mom fired him from uh, the vice president job, which was a great day in Chicago sports history. Oh, man. Yeah, that's never good when the son has to get the boot from a parent, which is actually something that the curse of Bobby Lane has in common with the Honey Bears. But we'll get to that. An interesting appetizer because the Bears do, plus the Packers, lead the NFL in championships by a lot. Like the Bears and Packers combined, I think, have more NFL championships than the than like all of the top 10 non-Midwestern teams combined. Mm-hmm. So I'm excluding the Steelers, but the Niners, the Patriots, you know, all of them, the Giants. Yeah. It's it has been a remarkable run, but so many of them are such ancient history now that the average fan walking the streets today, unless they're older than us, doesn't recognize it. One thing that is recognized by the younger generation is the Madden curse. If you play video games out there in listener land, then you've probably at least heard of the Madden series of NFL video games. Series goes back to 89, regular installments began in 92, annual games started in the late 90s. I need to remind everyone that the title of Madden Games also runs a year ahead of the actual calendar year. So Madden 24 is being released this year for the 2023 season. Madden 99 was released in 1998 for the 98-99 season and so on. Like cars. Yeah, basically. It was the cover of Madden 99 that first used NFL players on the cover. Earlier covers had used photos of John Madden himself, who was at the time one of the most recognizable and highly acclaimed color commentators of all time. Plus, he was a former Hall of Fame coach for the Raiders. Virtually every athlete chosen for the Madden cover has experienced some sort of serious misfortune that year. Usually it's a major injury, a decline in play, or both. So are you going to go through the entire list from 99 or just the Midwest ones or just the really notable ones? Because this could take all night in its own, right? <laughs> I'm going to name some of the prominent ones. Okay. And I'm, as we, because the older ones were, especially were really brutal. Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember like the, it seemed to have softened over time, but the first ones, it was just, if you were on Madden, your team wasn't going to make the playoffs and you might be lucky to be alive. Uh, yeah, you're not kidding. The cover featured Madden himself in the U.S., but internationally, uh, mm-hmm. the cover boy was San Francisco running back Garrison Hurst, and he was the first NFL player on the cover of Madden. I would not have gotten that trivia question right, by the way. He had a really good season. He set Niners records for rushing yards and total yards in a season in 98. And then in the playoffs, he suffered one of the most gruesome ankle injuries in the history of football. He missed the next two seasons to recover. And he was never a starting running back again. That's a brutal way to kick off the uh, curse, missing two seasons. Yeah. So they're like, you know what? In 2000 came along, we're going to put a player on all of our game boxes. We need somebody who's a stud. And they picked Barry Sanders. Oh, poor Detroit. (laughs) A few weeks after this, not even the games hadn't even shipped yet. Barry abruptly and unexpectedly retires. (laughs) That's what I was going to guess just based on the timeline. (laughs) Just so 
the entire league is left reeling as Barry had been expected to break the all-time career rushing mark if he had a typical Barry season. And more on that when we get to the curse of Bobby Lane, so there's overlap. So before we get too far to this, 99, Hurst was technically the first, but he wasn't on the U.S. covers. He was only internationally. Correct. So Barry was the first worldwide player, and he didn't even play a snap that season. Well, actually, we're not done here because because Madden scrambled and of later printings, including international, they put Dorsey Levins on the cover of the of the game, the Green Bay running back. So Dorsey Levins was considered an up and comer at the time. Okay, well, we're not going to get somebody who's going to retire. And I don't even remember that name. Dorsey Levins. uh, He was a big deal in 98, but in 99, he had nothing but nagging injuries that derailed Mm. him. Uh, The Packers had their worst season since Brett Favre joined at that point. And by the 2001 season, the Packers had quietly cut him. Okay. So that's why I don't really remember much. I guess you had a good year 98 before I really started getting into it. It's amazing how many of these players, this was the end of the road for. Wow. Madden 2001. So the 2000 game was the Eddie George cover. Oh, he got Ray Lewis that year. I remember that. He had an all-time great year 2000 in terms of the regular season. Then in the playoffs, he bobbled a routine pass that became a Raiders interception. Baltimore scored. Titans season was over. And Eddie George never put up another elite running back season. I remember that that playoff game very well because... Eddie George was a Buckeye, so I was really rooting for them. And they were the, I think, thirteen and three. The Ravens were the second best team in the AFC at twelve and four, but they had to play each other earlier because of the way the wild card seedings, I think, went. Right? Eddie George was so brutally stuffed by Ray Lewis that game. He was never the same. Like it's like watching Drexler stats. If you go back to Pro Fasco reference and you look at his stats before the Dream Team, before Jordan dressed him down, and after. They took fall off a cliff, and I think Eddie George went from averaging like five point something yards per carry to like never breaking four in his career again. He had like three or four more seasons, but he never was good. He was just there. For the rest of his career, he averaged less than 3.4 yards per carry. Oh, that's brutally bad, especially for someone who was that good. It was the end of the road. Yep. Madden curse. The 2001 season had Dante Culpepper gracing the cover in full Vikings regalia. That was the year that the Madden curse became a publicly discussed thing because Culpepper injured his knee in the beginning of the season, and then he regressed horribly in 2002, and that was pretty much the end of Dante Culpepper. He used to be so good. I remember that, and he did not last as long as the other guys of that draft class, like Donovan McNabb and stuff. I wonder if this is going to overlap with some of the Vikings stuff because this pretty much derailed that build of the Vikings, too. Yeah, I mean, they went through a lot of quarterbacks for a while. Similar to the Eddie George cover was the Marshall Falk cover in 2002 for Madden 03. Unfortunately for our St. Louis friends, that was the year the decline started for Marshall Falk. It was his first season under 1,000 yards with the Rams, and he never got to 1,000 yards again. Although he played all the way until he had um, a knee surgery to repair his knee in the 2006 offseason and then just that was it madden 04 michael vick broke his leg in the preseason the actual 2004 season the next year so madden 05 featured ray lewis 
And he wasn't exactly awful, but he failed to catch an interception for that year for the first time. And the Ravens also had a rare playoff miss. I was going to say that's one of the few times they missed the playoffs in that time period. It was 05 where Lewis tore his hamstring in year six. So the year after. Uh, Madden 06 was the Donovan McNabb cover. He was on fire to start the year and then blew his knee week 11, and he was just never consistently good again. I didn't look up the timeline, but is that the year that ended their four seasons in a row on the NFC Championship game streak, or is that a couple years later? Either way, it's around that time. A similar story was the 07 cover, Sean Alexander. Broke his foot week three of 2006, couldn't stay healthy in 2007, cut in 2008. So... Here's where we get our next wild story. 2007 game, so I think the 06 year. Madden publisher Electronic Arts wanted LaDainian Tomlinson to be on the cover. And the Chargers fan got wind of this and started just this riotous campaign to keep LT off the cover. Eventually, Tomlinson declined and they said, well, there was a breakdown in negotiations for his likeness. And it it became maybe the best single season by a running back in history. So instead, the cover in that year went to a quarterback so confident in his own abilities that he openly scoffed at the Madden curse. It went to Titans quarterback Vince Young. Well, so long career, Mr. Young. It was short and bright while it lasted. Young injured his quad in week six, which was his first game missed for injury ever. Then he came back, re-injured the quad again in week 17. The next year he hurt his knee in week one, was officially demoted to backup, basically never heard from again. Added bonus, the Spanish language version of Madden released that year was with Chargers defensive end Luis Castillo, who was limited to 10 games with a knee injury. So they're batting a thousand here. Oh my God. We're, We're a decade in now, like 10 for 10. Yeah. Wow. The 2008's Madden 09 was a hilarious story. Well, hilarious unless you're a Packer fan. The Green Bay Packers quarterback Brett Favre had just announced his retirement. The curse couldn't affect a retired player, could it? So they put Brett Favre Favre. on the cover in his Packers number four. And about 30 seconds later, Brett Favre decided he didn't really want to retire after all. So he goes to the Jets where he was okay, but constant off the field issues and that was also the year he sustained his shoulder injury that he never really got over i was gonna say off the field issues um i'm not gonna say it on the air but there was a snl skit about uh jeans he was promoting like wrangler but different kind of cut i do remember they actually started off nine and three and they were looking pretty good and then he got that shoulder injury you mentioned and they went oh and four and missed the playoffs on like a tiebreaker like that team was set up perfectly, and then it was just a gut punch for the poor Jets fans who probably are cursed in some way, but they don't, they're not in our region, so we're not going to cover them today. <laughs> no. Madden 10 was weird because they put two athletes on the cover. Larry Fitzgerald was really the first case of a clean miss by the curse. Not affected. I mean, he did have minor injuries, of course, but he played through everything, and his stats didn't take a blip at all. Then... The other guy was Pittsburgh safety Troy Palomalu, who ate every last shred of the curse. Sprained his knee week one, missed four games, hobbled through three games, injured his knee again, season over. 
Was that the year after they played in the Super Bowl or something? Is that why they did both of those teams? Because you remember the Pitt- Pittsburgh I think beat so. them in one of the most exciting Super Bowls I I can remember. So I guess the curse. So I guess the curse got revenge. All right, yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, I could keep going, but you get the point. A Madden cover appearance presaged career low seasons from Drew Brees, 11, Adrian Peterson, 14. Career-altering injuries to Cleveland running back Peyton Hillis, who was a fan vote in 2012. Richard Sherman, Tommy John in 2015. Rob Gonkowski, 2017. That was his back surgery. Plus, there's the weird case of Antonio Brown, 2018-2019 game. That was his last year with the Steelers, so maybe it was the Madden curse that drove him nuttier than a squirrel's lunch. Great point, because that was the year where most of it hit the fan, and it went rapidly that last year in Pittsburgh, right through the offseason where he never made the Raiders team and then got cut by the Patriots, etc. For a helmet being that important to him, he was not pictured wearing one, so we don't get it. You know, in later years, there have been quite a few misses. Calvin Johnson got the cover for Madden 13, which sounded like it was going to be a complete disaster <laughs> in the 2012 season. So it's Curse of Bobby Lane plus Madden Curse plus 13. And he put one of the best wide receiver seasons of all time. Was that where he like just shy of 2,000 yards? To... I think that was, yeah. Or Chris Johnson had, was CJ two K, but. Megatron almost made it, but I don't. I think he saw this receiving yards record, but I don't think anybody's made two thousand. Right. We'll see it. We'll see it in our lifetime now that there's seventeen games, but and yeah, guys like Justin Jack, and just more passing. But yeah, that was incredible. So it, maybe the triple curse whammy worked. They canceled each other out into a positive. I don't know. Odell Beckham in 2015 had a good year other than a fight at the end with Carolina cornerback, Josh Norman, known agitator. But other than that, and a couple minor things he played through, he did fine. Madden 2018 had Tom Brady. All he did was win an MVP and go all the way to the Super Bowl, though they were upset by the Nick Foles Eagles. Well, that's the curse, how it affects Tom Brady. You lose by three points to uh, Nick Foles because Matt Patricia is your defensive coordinator something like that but then that curse got transferred to the to detroit because he went there that matt patricia curse that's its own thing <laughs> matt patricia being alive is a curse <laughs> lately the covers have been entirely established elite level quarterbacks but it hasn't gone away there's just been a weird one year delay on awful years uh starting with antonio brown who went bananas the year after That was the year that he didn't make it through Raiders camp. Lamar Jackson, 21, he was fine. He missed one game for COVID. Then in actual 21 was when the injuries and decline started. Tom Brady in 22, you know, 21, he was fine. 22, he fell off the cliff. Hey, they still won the division. Yes. That and five bucks will get you a latte at Starbucks. Though Mahomes, who shared the cover with Brady in 2021, and he had his own cover for Madden 2020, seems to have gotten off with a miss. Although that first one, he didn't have his 2019 knee injury, but he missed less than a month. Was that the year they won their first Super Bowl? Did they lose to Tom Brady? Because they had a couple painful losses where they, you could argue if you look back on the Kansas City six-year run, they might have won three or four. But 
maybe that was the how the Madden curse affects the elite guys like Mahomes and Brady, where they just lose the Super Bowl instead of winning it. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, but I mean, some people are saying the curse is over now that it hasn't really hit someone year of in a while. And then in 2022, they put John Madden back on the cover as a fitting memorial for his passing. Oh, I was going to say, and then he died, but that was, or he had already passed. Okay. Right. I mean, maybe though, it just took a year off and it's ready to strike 2023 cover boy, Josh Allen, as hard as ever. On that note, I wonder if someone in my dynasty league wants to trade high form right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I will say I love Madden. Um, It's an interesting character. If you talk to three different generations, they'll remember him three different ways. You talk to our generation, we'll remember him as the announcer. You talk to uh, younger kids, they'll remember him for the video game. And if you talk to older people, our parents are the boomer types. They'll remember him as a coach, the great coach. And he was great at every right. So absolutely props to him. And thanks for giving us a great curse for us to lead off this episode with. Well, the appetizer was the honey bears. That's true. But this is one of the main courses, I would say. Yeah. When we looked up the Vikings, it popped up like 10 different curses, I swear. So, I, Brian, you took it upon yourself and bless you for this to, to kind of sort this out and see what was going on with the Vikings curses. What did you come up with? Buddy? So I'm, I'm going to uh, address a lot of the smaller ones. Um, a lot of it does seem just like unfortunate stuff. I don't even know if some of these are curses, but they do. I would say they're definitely cursed. So. The main one that I'm going to deep dive is the curse of the Ed Thorpe Memorial Trophy. Before the Lombardi Trophy, the Ed Thorpe Memorial Trophy was a traveling trophy, much like the Stanley Cup is today. From 1934 it was, and to 1969, it was named after a ref that the NFL liked a lot for some reason, which is weird to hear likable ref, you know, but this was the 30s when he died, 34, before, you know. The Vikings won the last ever trophy going into the AFL NFL championship game that some point, which, which, you know, later become the Super Bowl. Allegedly, they lost the trophy or couldn't find it, or they tried to replace it with a replica or something. And that was funny because it's like, I like the idea of just like, oh, sorry, next year's champ. We can't give it to you. We don't know where we found it. Hint, hint, wink, wink. It's in the you know, the basement of our secret stash of trophies that we can brag to like rich people have, you know, since then they have had one of the most tortured runs. Like, so just, I'm just going to go through, I'm not going to make the Vikings live all of them, but I'm going to, I'm going to cut through a couple of these for a second. So some of these moments was just like in my lifetime, I'm just going to stick to three of them. I'm going to start with, what I was watching with my friend Sarah at a bar, and the, the Vikings were up nine to whatever. Uh, it was t- they they they're playing the Seahawks, um, and this was after the Metrodome collapsed, if you remember. So they weren't Ooh. playing in their dome, and they were a dome built team. They were playing in the Minnesota football stadium, and it was freezing cold. So Blair Walsh had gone three for three for like 40 plus yard field goals. It must have, his foot probably was going to fall off. I mean, he was kicking 49 yarders in the ice, you know, that had to feel like kicking a brick. 
And they were down by one point to the Seahawks. And I'll never forget it. The Vikings set up a 27-yard field goal with Blair Walsh, who was the most accurate kicker in the league at that point. And my friend, who's a Vikings fan, she just walks out of the bar. And I'm like, where are you going? You're about to beat the Seahawks. And she goes, we're going to miss it. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a 27-yarder. Your guy's perfect. He's the MVP of this game because he's the only offense the Vikings have had today. And he immediately shanks it. (laughs) And he was cut midway through the the next season. They never recovered. So that's how you know. The, the, the me, the more telling thing wasn't that he missed the 27-yarder. It's the Viking fans knew he was going to miss it. And the next two bigger ones are bigger yeah. because they were oh NFC gosh. Championship games. Complete you mentioned, metaphysical certainty. That blows my mind. Yeah. You know there's a curse when the fan base is like, this super improbable thing that never happens will happen, and I you can't convince me elsewhere. And this was one of, well, I hate to say favorite playoff moments, but it was a weird thing because the Vikings led by Brett Farr that year. That was his first year at coming off of the uh, Madden curse. He recovered after the Jets year and he led them to the NFC championship game against the Saints where they made it into the playoff into into overtime. And uh, Brett Farr threw an interception that led to overtime and... Uh, then uh, they uh, basically lost yards in a game-winning field goal was set up. Uh, oh, sorry. Instead of throwing the interception, Brett Farr could have just tucked the ball and ran and set up a game-winning field goal, but instead he threw an interception that led to a 31-28 to loss. And that Vikings team was stacked. That was probably the best team in the league. And I know when the Saints won, that was a pretty big upset. But speaking of upsets, probably the greatest NFL team of all time did not win a Super Bowl was the 15 and 1 1998 Vikings. Remember that Randy Moss, Chris Carter. Oh man. Oh my god, this was the Gary Anderson miss. They uh, were they, so stacked. So oh, stacked. It was one of the greatest rosters of all time. Like if you ever play a Madden game in that era, that's got to be the most fun to play. Like even their defensive line had three future like three pro bowlers on it. And oh my god, I can't even go through the roster off of memory, but it was great. And then they lost to the Dirty Bird Falcons, 30-27. to 27. And I, for some reason, was thinking like it was the Bills situation where he missed like a long upper 40, like a 47-yard field goal. It was a 37-yard field goal by Gary Anderson, who, like Blair Walsh years later, was the most accurate kicker. And he missed the 37-yarder. And uh, In the dome. In the dome, yep. At least Blair Walsh did it and was kicking a brick in the freezing cold, you know. But, I mean, it was brutal. If you've talked to a Vikings fan about shame, right? A Lions fan might argue, well, we don't even make the playoffs or win playoff games. But then it goes to what's worse, not even making the playoffs or making having the best team in the league routinely fall short of what they should be doing. And I'm not commenting either way on it. It just leads to a good debate. And that's kind of what the Vikings seem to have is that they just have a great team that just always underachieve. I mean, even last year, they were 13 and four and didn't get anywhere, you know? But while we're talking about the modern Vikings, I'm just going to say, here's, here's some of the list of the 10 ones that are out there. There is one of them that is the beat the Vikings win a Lombardi curse. So the Vikings are always close to winning a Lombardi, but never quite there. The 17 Eagles, the 18 Patriots, the 19 Chiefs, the 2020 Bucks, the 2021 Rams, 
I'll beat the Vikings at some point. I think it's a little bit of a cop out because I think beating them in the playoffs might matter more, but you know, it's just beating them at some point they've, they've won. It's kind of more of a rite of passage thing. There's one where in short, the Vikings have just never beaten a team by 17 points in over three years. I wouldn't consider that a curse, but apparently, you know, everything's a curse nowadays. They have the longest streak of made extra points against them. Apparently that's a curse. I guess that is more now that the extra points are 37 yarders. I love one of them. You see, this is where it just gets funny. This is what yeah. I was talking about. There's not really I mean, in depth. Tell the, yeah, but tell that to the Vikings. How oh, could that's... anyone ever miss a 37 yarder? Yeah. Oh, oh, good point. They never, they don't even make it when it matters, but yet no one will miss one against them. So that's a great point. Um, <laughs> the, the Kirk Cousins curse, which that just makes me laugh because it's, it's the Kirk Cousins curse. Um, no NFL team has lost to a team with Kirk Cousins as QB1 and gone on to win the Super Bowl that same season. So, in short, if you lose to the Vikings led by Kirk Cousins, you will not win. Which is funny because that means most of the teams that uh, played the Vikings earlier, obviously they had to beat them. But and so it was, it was a punt return curse. They haven't returned a punt for a touchdown in seven years. Um, this one's interesting because it's purple on purple crime, where it's uh, in every season where the Vikings have played the Ravens, the Vikings win and <laughs> win over Baltimore. They've reached the NFC Championship. If the Vikings lose, the head coach is fired the same season. That's wild. <laughs> so- like, you either make the NFC Championship or you lose your job. So I haven't looked at the schedule yet, but I will say if the Vikings are playing the Baltimore Ravens this year and you're the head coach, and I know you're new, but you're on the hot seat. I'm putting money on you in Vegas for first coach fired if you lose. <laughs> so wow. Crack me up. They haven't won a road playoff Monday night game since they beat the Bears. Uh, oh, sorry. A team not named the Bears. Apparently the only team they can beat on Monday night on the road since night in the last 15 years is the Chicago Bears. Oh, my God. Okay, but how many started... Monday night games have they had? But they ha- anyway. That's true. Well, they, they get they get theirs. You know, whatever. They, they, uh, another curse. They haven't won. A, they haven't started a season with back to back wins since 2016. So that means they're always 0 and 2 or 1 and 1. Um, in the Super Bowl era, the Vikings have the third best regular season percentage and no Super Bowl wins. That's to the point about them just not just being cursed, but just being tortured. I mean, having the third best record. In the Super Bowl era, 50-some years, and not winning a single Super Bowl is got to be brutal. I don't even know if they've made the Super Bowl. They have. But Purple People Eaters made it in the 70s, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just been a long time. So that, that just about sums it up. But there, there's even more if you really break it down. But a lot of it is just like heartbreaking stuff that they don't necessarily tie into curses. But I will tie them all back to the Ed Thorpe Memorial Trophy where they lost it. And after losing it, apparently the uh, ghost of Ed Thorpe, the former referee in the NFL, has never forgiven them since. So uh, tough break, Minnesota. Hopefully, I don't know how you exercise those demons. You know, it's not like a billy goat or, uh, you know. (laughs) We might if we have time, we might talk about how one exercises a curse later, because believe me, people have tried with our main event for the evening, the curse of Bobby Lane. That could be a whole nother episode of just ways crazy fans have tried to exercise the demons of their various sports curses and how effective they were. Yeah, the curse of Bobby Lane now. For people to understand this story, 
you have to recognize how different the NFL was back in the 40s and 50s because that's when this curse starts. In the late 40s and 50s, the top NFL teams were the Bears, the Eagles, the Browns, the Rams, and the Lions. This is shocking to modern NFL fans. It's not that the Bears and the Browns and the Lions have never been good. It's that you have to be 70 years old to remember it. The you know, Bears slightly less so. The Detroit Lions, will tell to tell their story, began life in 1930 as the Portsmouth Spartans in Portsmouth, Ohio. They appeared in the 1931 NFL Championship game, actually, losing to the Packers in just their second season. They moved to Detroit then in time for the 1934 season. They were renamed the Lions, who don't count the Portsmouth seasons in the team records. Really? They're still count the Decatur Staley's for the record. <laughs> the Lions, after moving in 1934, won their first NFL title in 1935. Two years in Detroit, one title. They got 15 years of solid but not championship-level play. And then in 1950, the Lions acquired quarterback Bobby Lane from the now-defunct New York Bulldogs. Bobby Lane was a former two-way player and All-American quarterback for the Texas Longhorns. Besides being the quarterback, he was a defensive back, he was the place kicker, and he was a four-year starter on the baseball team that never lost a conference game with Lane in the lineup. He wasn't a football scholarship, he was a baseball scholarship. Just one of those unbelievable athletes so he was drafted in 1948 by the pittsburgh steelers who at the time believe it or not had no winning tradition none it's hard to believe that i know we associate the steelers with winning especially in the super bowl era but in the 40s and 50s they were a laughing stock they'll come into this morality play later too the Steelers immediately traded Lane to the powerhouse Chicago Bears, where Lane sat buried on the depth chart behind Sid Luckman for his entire rookie season. That offseason, he was traded again. So it's entering his second year. He's already been traded twice to the short-lived New York Bulldogs. The Bulldogs were so ineptly run that Lane nearly gave up football. The Lions, who needed quarterback help at the time, offered a pittance for Bobby Lane, and the Bulldogs gave him change back. <laughs> Once he got to Detroit, Bobby Lane was the starter, but he immediately feuded with the head coach, Bo McMillan, over who got to call the plays. Surprisingly, it was McMillan who got his contract bought out. The Lions hired Raymond Buddy Parker as the new head coach. He immediately turned the play-calling duties over to Bobby Lane, and all the Lions did after that was win. A lot. Nice. The 50s were a golden age for Lions football. Detroit claimed three straight division titles from 1952 to 54. And in 52 and 53, they carried the momentum on to win two NFL championships, both times beating the Cleveland Browns. It was Lane who's credited with inventing the two-minute offense. In the second of those title wins, where Lane drove Detroit the length of the field in the final two minutes to earn the game-winning score in a 17-16 Classic. One reason he was so great in the fourth quarter might have been because that was about when he'd sober up from the night before. <laughs> Likes to party. Can't blame a man for that. Young man. Oh, yeah. Dennis Rodman would be proud. 
he was one of the hardest partiers in Detroit sports history, and that's saying something. He was known <laughs> around town as a notorious partier, as evidenced by his less-than-athletic belly. Didn't matter. No quarterback ever had better intangibles. He was one of the first two first-ballot Pro Football Hall of Famers ever. He was the first athlete ever to be pictured alone on the cover of Time magazine. And when the Lions released a set of cards commemorating their first 60 years in 1994, Bobby Lane was the only quarterback. Hey, you mentioned uh, his beer gut. Uh, Smoke and Jay Cutler would agree quarterbacks don't need to be in shape. Because if you remember when he signed with the uh, Dolphins out of retirement for $10 million, they asked, what have you been doing to stay in football shape? And he said, I'm a quarterback. I don't need to be. <laughs> Jeez. Spins <laughs> up. Yeah, the Lions get to 1957. Coach Buddy Parker had just been hired away by the Steelers. Remember them. But the team, the Lions, was still looking like a contender after a bad year in 56. It was late in the 57 regular season that the worst happened. Bobby Lane got tackled by two defensive linemen, broke his leg, missed the rest of the year. Now, this was still a Detroit Lions team that was absolutely stacked. There were seven future Hall of Famers on the 57 Lions without Bobby Lane. Ooh. Detroit still rolled to an NFL title, beating, again, the Cleveland Browns. This time, it was a 59-14 shellacking. Which, by the way, I should note that Cleveland still won, like, four or five titles in this span themselves. They were just always in the championship game that year, that decade. It was like, yeah. it was like LeBron went going to eight straight championship games. He didn't win all of them. He's on a losing end, but he won a lot of them too. So this is Detroit's third NFL title in six years and their fourth NFL title overall in a league that's less than 30 years into their modern version. You would think that Detroit would count their blessings and get Bobby Lane back under center for as long as he wanted to be there. That's not what happened. In 1958, management, the new management, remember they had just hired a new coach in 57, decided that they were tired of the partying ways and the broken leg at that time. They thought that was something that an athlete did on their way to the athlete morgue. So they went and they brought in a veteran quarterback named Tobin Rote. And the Lions insisted on platooning both of them at quarterback. They would literally alternate quarters. This is weird because I would have figured they would have just walked away, said, hey, we won the championship without you and you broke your leg. But instead they kept him and then just basically demoted him to the a co co officer ma office manager like they did in the office with uh Michael Scott and Jim at yeah. one point. It's but, important to point out that this was a different era of the NFL. This was pre-free agency. This was no salary cap. Your team pretty much had you mm. until unless they decided to trade you. Okay. And that's eventually what happened. The Lions and some of the local media thought Lane was done. He was not having success rotating quarters with another quarterback. I wonder why. It's never worked out. <laughs> We've tried it since, so yeah. So the team decided to cut bait and go with the kid. The middle of the season, the coach called Bobby Lane and told him, report to the Pittsburgh Steelers, you've just been traded, click. Ouch. At least he went back to his old coach. 
Well, exactly. It was that abrupt for the man that had been the heart and soul of the Detroit Lions for eight years. All the Lions got in return was quarterback Earl Morrill. If you've never heard of him, that's the point. And two future draft picks. Lane was extremely upset. He thought it was just a brutal way to thank him for everything he did for the Lions. Basically, two and a half titles. Lane made two remarks. Wait, the Lions got rid of a good player before time being in an unceremonious way that offended them and the fan base? That that sounds like a, something that would be repeated over time, possibly. Never quite like this. Lane made two remarks at the time that stick in the minds. This is where the curse comes from. The first comment was, with that management, the Lions won't win for 50 years. Remember that comment, because I'm coming back to it later. The second one was, I'd like to win a championship for the Steelers and for myself to shove down Detroit's throat. I like this guy. Fire. There was comparable outrage by the fans after hearing that Lane was traded also. The Lions fans couldn't believe it. Now, to fully understand the next part, you need to realize, again, Pittsburgh Steelers, up until the late 50s, were the laughing stock of the NFL. So when he was traded to the Pittsburgh Steelers, he was traded to Siberia, as far as football is concerned. This almost reminds me of the change in the guards. Isn't that like kind of what the curse of the Bambino was like, where the Boston won like five World Series, they got rid of them, went to the Yankees, and then they won 700? Yeah, it is amazing how many times the Lions are going to play Kingmaker coming up. Ooh, I like where this is going. Go on. The Steelers were founded in 1933. They were briefly called the Pittsburgh Pirates. By 1958, 25 years later, the franchise had one playoff appearance, zero division titles, and zero playoff wins. Sounds like the Lions now. Former Lions coach Buddy Parker started with the Steelers in 57. We talked about him. Lane arrived in the middle of 58. Bobby Lane started the remaining 10 games of the 1958 season, as well as the next four years before he retired a Pittsburgh Steeler. All five of those years were non-losing seasons, which at that time for Pittsburgh was saying something. Mm -hmm. After Lane's retirement, the Steelers bottomed out again in the mid-60s before they hired Chuck Knoll in 1969 and drafted Mean Joe Green that same year and... This sets up the powerhouse Steelers teams of the 70s. Yeah, Bobby Lane never brought the Steelers an NFL title directly, but he did bring star quality. He raised expectations. He arguably taught the franchise how to win. So make no mistake, this is one of the biggest trades in Steelers history and absolutely a highlight of the franchise. It was the prehistoric example of them getting it together and winning. They've had so many great players since him. It's hard to forget what he meant to the franchise at the time where at the time he retired, he probably was by far the greatest stealer of all time until that point, which changing the culture really mattered because now he's probably not even top 30. Well, I mean, he is a first ballot Hall of Famer. And if you go see his stuff in Canton, the Lions logo is up there right next to the Steelers logo. That's fair. For Detroit, though, the effects of the curse Bobby Lane uttered were immediate and severe. Unofficially, William Baker became the first victim of the curse in 1960 when Baker was found dead on the sidewalk after 27 years as the Lions mascot. Nobody is safe. 
I was not expecting death to be involved in this curse. Poor mascot. Wow. Oh, it will not be the last one. As for on the field, though, Tobin wrote fell on his face as Lane's replacement almost immediately. So did Earl Morrill, the main return in the trade once his chance came. For decades, the Lions were unable to find even a halfway decent quarterback. In the 20th century, the more notable names include Jeff Garcia, Joey Harrington, Charlie Batch, Scott Mitchell, Gary Danielson. Yes, the announcer Gary Danielson, Eric Hipple, Gus Farad, Dave Krieg, Rodney Pete, Ty Detmer, Chuck Long, Jeff Comlo. More on him, unfortunately, in a moment. Eric Kramer and dozens more. I have some comments like Jeff Garcia on that list because Jeff Garcia was a Pro Bowl quarterback for the Niners and the Eagles, but in between he quarterbacked the Lions and the Browns and he was not good in those stands. Oh my God. No, not even close. These were the better quarterbacks out of the list that Detroit had. Yeah, yeah. I remember there being some synergy with the Bears and the Lions when I was looking at history, like Lane and Luckman were kind of co-same era and then you had to wait decades, and then you had Eric Kramer in 96 and Scott Mitchell, where they weren't good, but they were good statistically. And then you had the Matt Stafford, Jay Cutler era, where maybe they weren't that great. Stafford might be a Hall of Famer now they've won a Super Bowl, but they probably have all the records just because they played in the modern era and were above average. Some of them are pretty decent quarterbacks. The Lions got to the playoffs with Charlie Batch without Barry Sanders. Joey Harrington was not a great quarterback, but he was also blamed for everything from sacks to drop passes to winter blizzards, and he wasn't alone. Real quick, I want to tie this back to last episode's What If with Ryan Leaf and Peyton Manning. Charlie Batch, same draft class, was the number one rookie quarterback of those three before Peyton Manning took off. Only as a rookie, and we're splitting hairs. Quite simply, the Lions haven't had a top-flight quarterback since the days of Bobby Lane until at least Matt Stafford. The quarterback body count, though, is nothing compared to the graveyard of coaches that Detroit has become. Since letting Buddy Parker go to the Steelers, Detroit has had 20 head coaches, including interim coaches. Daryl Bevel, who was 1-4 in in relief of Matt Patricia. Dick Duran, 1-4 in after Steve Mariucci was shown the door. And Gary Moeller, who went four and three after Bobby Ross was shoved out. Only three of those 20 coaches left with winning records. The most important was former NFL MVP and a career Lions linebacker, Joe Schmidt, who coached from 67 to 72. The second was the aforementioned Gary Moeller, who went four and three and was promised to stay. But then the Lions hired Matt Millen to general manager. And the first thing he did was fire Gary Moeller. And do you say there's only three of them and one of them was four and three? Yep. I can bet who the third one is. Was it uh, Caldwell? You got it. Third and most recent. He led the Lions to their two most recent playoff berths, despite the roster deteriorating rapidly in 2015 after general manager Martin Mayhew was fired and replaced by Tom Lewan. It was Lewan that blamed Caldwell, and then he went on to hire his buddy Matt Patricia. I remember Caldwell, four years, I think he had a winning record in three of them, and his worst record was seven and nine, and that wasn't even the year they got rid of him. I I looked into this history of the Lions a few years ago, like the last 20 years, and his record stands out so high above all the other Lions head coaches in modern time that 
in my opinion, it is a travesty that he has not been hired as an NFL coach since, especially because he took the Colts to the Super Bowl one year. On that point, two statistics put the Lions coaching ineptitude in perspective. One, out of all the Lions head coaches since Buddy Parker in 1957, the only one ever to be a head coach in the NFL ever again after being the Lions head coach was Dick Duran. And he was the 2005 interim guy. Oh, man, he was terrible in Chicago. Two, the last time a Lions assistant coach was directly hired as an NFL team's head coach with no stops in between was 1972. That was Joe Schmidt's staff. The one with a winning record. One yeah. of the three. The Lions job is the ultimate NFL resume blight. Hey, Matt Patricia landed on his feet that uh, going from defensive corner to head coach to offensive play caller or something in New England, making sure they had the worst offense in their season. Never mind. One thing that all of this had in common is ownership. And that's the first thing that people who don't believe in curses point to. William Clay Ford, youngest son of Edsel Ford, grandchild of Henry Ford, was briefly involved in Ford Automotive in the design branch and kind of shown the door. He bought his first stake in the Lions in 1961 when this team was still, if not one of the best in the NFL, still a solid franchise. Before Christmas 1962, then the Ford Rotunda burned to the ground. Most people today have never heard of the Ford Rotunda, but it was built for the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago, then relocated in 34 to be near the Ford Motor Company's headquarters in Dearborn, Michigan. At the time, it was the fifth most popular tourist attraction in the United States, ahead of Yellowstone, the Washington Monument, and the Statue of Liberty. Wow. Gone. Whew. So this curse has followed the Fords personally. William Clay Ford after he bought his stake, quickly took advantage of bad blood between the two main owners at the time to buy out everybody else and gain sole ownership of the team for $4.5 million in 1963 dollars. Became official November 22, 1963, and was announced that day, which made it the second biggest news story in Detroit on that day. It was the biggest. JFK's assassination. Can we cut me asking that? <laughs> If you can see Brian's face right now. <laughs> wow. In William Clay Ford Sr.'s 50 years of Lions sole ownership, note the number of years, management like that, the Lions won't win for 50 years. Detroit barely won over 40% of their games. They won one playoff game in that 50-year span, and they never saw a Super Bowl except for the two that they hosted. That's, that's, a, that's a slap in the face. Hey, you get to host them so not someone else could play. Hey, they get to host a lot of Thanksgiving games, okay? I mentioned the Lions play Kingmaker. The Lions did not appear in the playoffs after the 1957 NFL title game until 1970. In that 1970 game, they lost in miserable 5 nothing fashion to a different team that had never won anything meaningful in their entire existence up until that moment, the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, so they turned the Cowboys and the Steelers into winners. Their next playoff berth for the Lions was 12 years later in the 82-strike-shortened season, despite a 4-5 and five regular season record, so they became, I think, 
if not the first team ever to make the playoffs with a losing record, it had to be close. And they were embarrassed again. They lost to the Washington Redskin Potatoes 31 to 7. For those of you keeping score at home, seven playoff points in 25 years. And then it led to three Super Bowls for Washington, five for, I think, Dallas, and I don't remember how many for Pittsburgh, six afterwards. <laughs> well, Washington had been a very good team for a long time. So there were a little more. But it was the out. Joe Gibbs era. I'm just saying that they won three yeah. Super Bowls between 1983 to nine. Oh, maybe they won one before that. I can't remember. But anyways. Then 83 came. It was another king making playoff appearance. Detroit had won the Central and almost beat the fledgling San Francisco 49ers, but missed the game-winning field goal as time expired. And then they crowned Joe Montana, Bill Walsh era, started it up. These were the prime years of Billy Sims, the Lions running back, to wear number 20 before Barry. He was on a possible Hall of Fame trajectory until he suffered a catastrophic knee injury in 1984, despite never being hit on the play. He crumpled in a heap on the field and his career was over though sims is in the lion's ring of honor and remains beloved in detroit so that's why they had their success briefly there was the, they had about four good seasons of billy sims by far the best thing to happen to the Lions since bobby lane was barry sanders he is the only lion to play for the team since the 60s to be elected for the hall of fame until 21st century players like a 40-year span or something 34 basically yeah in barry's third year 1991 detroit won the division hosted dallas in the playoffs their first time hosting a playoff game since the 1957 nfl championship 34 years earlier and they beat dallas 38 to 6 in 91 of course detroit got killed by washington the next week 41 to 10 and they haven't won a playoff game since And make no mistake, the Lions paid for that 1991 win in the curse. Offensive lineman Mike Utley was paralyzed from the mid-chest down during a game by Silverdome AstroTurf that was little more than painted concrete. Mm -hmm. That was also the year that another Lions offensive lineman, Eric Andelsek, was killed standing in his front yard because a truck driver had fallen asleep at the wheel. Oh, in his front yard? Yep. Boom, gone. Two offensive linemen in 91. Wow. Of course, any discussion of Barry Sanders has to include how his time with the team ended. Drafted in 89 and an immediate sensation, the Lions were in or flirting with the playoffs almost every year under then head coach Wayne Fonts until an injury plagued 5 and 11 bottom out led to Fonts' ouster. He was replaced by virtual drill sergeant Bobby Ross, literally drill sergeant. He was a former Army head coach. By 1999, though, the season was the most promising since 91. Most of the major holes on the roster had been filled, and Barry then abruptly retired. Burned out by a Lions team that never gave him the support he needed and a head coach that took all the fun and camaraderie out of football. The vacuum at running backs sent the team to an 8-8 skid, which was good enough to get clobbered in the first round of the playoffs by Washington again. Detroit would not get back to the playoffs until Jim Schwartz in 2011. Wow, over a decade. I just want to add a caveat to Barry Sanders' retirement. I believe at that point he had had it with him and asked for a trade or release, and there were a lot of rumors of him going to Miami to join Dan Marino. 
And I wanted to see that happen so bad because Marino and Sanders were two of my favorite non-Bears players ever. And I think that would have been a fun to see them unite for one hurrah. But because of the curse, Barry Sanders had to quit football altogether just to get out. It's a shame. I could go on for the next hour on the long list of stupidity and tragedy that the Lions have put their fans through over the last 65 years. Two words, Matt Patricia. That sums it up. (laughs) If ESPN ever did a 30 for 30 on the curse of Bobby Lane, and they should, it would probably have to be a two-parter. There's that much to it. Let me hit a couple highlights here. I'm legitimately going to skip probably half of what I prepped here. 1963, pro bowler Alex Karras was suspended indefinitely for gambling. He was told to stay away from the Lindell Athletic Club in downtown Detroit due to suspicions of a gambling ring that was thought to be there. What does Alex Karras do? He goes and buys a stake in the Lindell Athletic Club and tends bar there. Well, he's suspended for the year. What else is he going to do? In comes pro wrestler Dick the Bruiser comes in and challenges Karras to a match. you got to realize Detroit is one of the biggest wrestling territories in the world at that time. Karras accepted the two ham up a mock fight on the spot here. Okay, yeah, (laughs) you're in my bar. Now we're going to, you know, and then some really stupid or junk guy mistook that for actual fisticuffs and broke a pool cue over the Bruiser's head. That's when the real fight started. Everybody gets arrested. Everybody got fined. They did have the match. The Bruiser won, and Karras was reinstated for the 64 season. I thought you were going to tell me he got killed in the ring. (laughs) No, the next Lions death wasn't until 64. Oh, that was the year we're coming up on. Cool. Yeah, uh, a Lions rookie offensive lineman got poisoned and died after his rookie year. What? Lucian Reberg. Just casually poisoned? Yeah, uh, it, it was. it's an old story, and there, I couldn't pull up a lot out of it, and I honestly didn't want to dwell on it too much. That sounds like something for Hashtag Murder Podcast, which one of our guests does, hosts uh, in the, we're going to have in the future. Might be. <laughs> There's the Tom Dempsey field goal, the 63-yarder that stood as the longest in the NFL history for decades. That was 1970 against the Lions. I mean, people hear this today and assume Dempsey was a great kicker. He was not. He just went against the Lions. Yeah, he was 5 for 10 on field goals that year. But he kicked four of them that day against Detroit for the one-point win, despite being born with only half of a right foot. Let's see. 1971, Lions wide receiver Chuck Hughes became the only player so far, and hopefully ever, to die on the field during an NFL game. He had been ignoring symptoms of an undiagnosed heart condition for months. He was 28. The game continued for the last two minutes or a minute and 10 seconds of a Bears upset win in Detroit, although the crowd was stunned into silence. That we know, thank goodness, that wouldn't happen today. Yeah. Yeah. We almost saw it. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's see here. Oh, and then there's the stupid stuff. 1974, Detroit trades Dave Thompson to the Saints for the Saints' eighth overall first round draft pick. Sounds great. So what? Trade also included sending Detroit's 13th overall pick to New Orleans, which Detroit didn't realize until they went up to the podium for 13th overall and found out the Saints had the pick. Wait, they didn't even know that they They did not realize they traded their 13th overall pick to the Saints as part of this deal. (laughs) 
Now that's some good incompetency right there. Yeah, they thought they were swapping this guy for, for for the eighth overall pick. They actually swapped him to move up five spots. Ouch. Let's see. There's another death. Don McCafferty, former Super Bowl winning head coach. Massive heart attack after his first year with the Lions. 1974. Can you blame him? Please don't let Urban Meyer coach for him. Apparently he <sighs> almost dies on all of his jobs. He will die in Detroit. 1980, Lions start the season hot and at 4-0. And you remember the Super Bowl shuffle, right? I do. So as was trendy at the time, the Lions released their own version of a song. They redid uh, the Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust. And that was pretty much the end of their winning for that year. They finished the year 5-7 and seven the rest of the way. They missed the playoffs. Lions fans were in the stands singing, I swear I'm not making this up. Another one beats our butts. Uh, That was also the year that the Lions lost to Chicago on Thanksgiving at home by the Bears returning the overtime kickoff return for a touchdown, which was the only kickoff return touchdown win for overtime in the 20th century. Wow. 87, then defensive coordinator Wayne Fonts was arrested and arraigned on cocaine possession and two drunk driving charges. Most trouble he was ever in until Detroit promoted him to head coach. (laughs) That's his punishment. Also 87, the Red Wings run a series of commercials where fans ask then Red Wings head coach Jacques Demir for Red Wings tickets, and then he proceeds to give them some, but not for the Wings. One of the commercials showed the fans looking at the tickets he got from Demir with a real sour look on his face before saying, the Lions. (laughs) That's just mean. 1988, more stupidity. Detroit has the ball on their own 12-yard line. It's fourth down. Right before the ball is snapped for the punt, one of the Saints' defensive players yelled Mayday, which was the Lions' code word to fake the punt. The code (laughs) was put in so the team could react if an opponent didn't cover one of the receivers. Jim Arnold, the punter, didn't punt, but instead rifled the ball from his own one-yard line to rookie Carl Painter, who had no idea it was coming. Ball hit him in the back as he ran down the field. <laughs> so the Saints randomly yelled that. Just their code word was just randomly thought out. Just they didn't. Know they it probably or? heard it. I mean, oh, it wouldn't they, surprise okay. wouldn't surprise me or if uh, okay. if they scouted it. Okay, that's. I'll skip that one because that's more deaths. 1995, height of the Barry Sanders era. Offensive lineman Lomas Brown guarantees a playoff victory in Philadelphia. Detroit lost 56 to 37. They were down 38, seven at the half. They put up some fantasy stats to make up for it, I guess, uh, even though no one plays in the playoffs and no one played at the time. 1997, Barry Sanders runs for over 2000 yards, but shares the NFL MVP award with Brett Favre. The Detroit lions beat writer, Kurt Sylvester voted for Favre and had the nerve to write a column about it. Or else he wouldn't have shared it. The day after the award was announced, an otherwise legal vote for Barry arrived in the mail. <laughs> so that should that really wouldn't shouldn't have been split. It should have just been Barry's MVP. It should have been Barry by two. Oh my God, that's that's a curse. That wow, that's rough. And in the very game in which Barry reached two thousand yards, star second year linebacker Reggie Brown was paralyzed making a tackle paid for it 
2001, the Lions start the year 0-10, catches the attention of Jay Leno, becoming the butt of jokes. Finally, Detroit beats the Culpepperless Minnesota Vikings to end the losing streak. As the Lions are leaving the field, Johnny Morton turns to a camera in jubilation, Lions wide receiver, Jay Leno can kiss my bleep. That Monday, Jay Leno brought in a live donkey into the studio to kiss while Morton watched via live satellite. <laughs> the following offseason, Morton was inexplicably cut by Matt Millen. Well, they did win one game, so Morton must have been great. Well, with what they replaced him with. No, Morton was actually pretty good. He was a good third guy, I remember, after Perriman and uh, Moore. Moore. Yeah, he was good enough to be a second guy, legitimately. He he was pretty solid. That was a really good trio back then, I remember. 2002, you'll remember this one. Lions force overtime at Chicago. They win the coin toss. Stiff breeze blows directly toward one end zone. Lions coach Marty Morningweg chooses to take the wind and kick off. In (laughs) sudden death overtime. That was so funny. I remember this. I was so mad. I You asked me about it at the time. And I was like, I want Marty Morningweg fired retroactively to the day he was hired. Regardless of winning. Like, it was just, as soon as you make that decision, it's like, you don't even get to coach the overtime. We're, we're going to get you out of here, buddy. I mean, <laughs> the Bears chose to receive and then scored on the first overtime possession. And that was it. That, that, that light breeze really paid off for the Lions, I guess. Yeah. 2004, Matt Millen runs into Johnny Morton following a game against Kansas City, which is where Morton was at the time. And Detroit had lost 45-17, as is typical for Matt Millen team. So Morton, they run into each other at the locker room and said some rather nasty things to each other. It's best I don't repeat. And the two needed to be forcibly separated. Millen later apologized. I mean, he's the general manager and team president that's doing this. What is he, Antonio Brown? 2005, Ford Field Security chases a longtime season ticket holder holding a Fire Millen sign around the stadium for nothing more than running away from them with a Fire Millen sign. I mean, of course, the crowd ate this up. Oh, Instant baby face. I mean, security did eventually catch up with the guy who took him down pretty much as hard as they could. And then they banned the man from the building for life and stripped him of his tickets. And this is when Fire Millen became a rallying cry for the Lions. I was going to say, and he never bought a drink in the town again. <laughs> Everyone went by. Oh, you're the dude with the Fire Millen sign. Your, your round's on me, buddy. Yeah, just about. 2006 is the Pittsburgh Steelers win Super Bowl 40 at the Lions home stadium to shove down Detroit's throat. Isn't that where the lane cut barb curse started from Detroit mm-hmm. to Pittsburgh? Yep. Detroit native and Pittsburgh running back Jerome Bettis retires after the win. Remember when I mentioned Jeff Kumlo in the kind of okay quarterbacks of the 20th century? Also 2006, Kumlo's featured on America's Most Wanted. Literally. Enough said. Wow. Also 2006, this was busy. Lions assistant coach Joe Cullen drives through a Wendy's to order a late night meal. Why are we talking about this? There were two problems with it. First, Cullen was obviously drunk at the time. Second, he was also completely naked. (laughs) A week later, the cops caught up with him and busted him for drunk driving. They have cameras on those things. Yeah. Uh, Please pull forward. Uh, sir. Oh, my God. 
2008, Lions go own 16. Millen finally fired. 2011, NFL finally institutes a rookie wage scale. Too late for the Lions, who drafted Matt Stafford first overall in 2009 and Ndamukong Sue second overall in 2010. They were spending so much on those two. Oh, my God. After paying Calvin Johnson, the Lions were already capped out, and they couldn't retain Nick Fairley or anybody else until they let Sue walk in 2015. Despite strong drafts at the time, Martin Mayhew took the blame as GM, and he was fired over the massive contracts that he pretty much had to give. I remember they were the epitome of studs and scrubs because they hit on their draft classes, but they had to pay them. There wasn't the rookie scale that they were rewarded for three to four, five years. Instead, yeah, at that time, you were punished for a top five draft pick because you basically had to give them some of the biggest contracts in NFL history. Mm -hmm. In 2016, the Lions lost their ninth straight playoff appearance. That was their most recent to date. Jim Caldwell was fired the next year, which was still a nine-win year, and they only missed the playoffs because of that screwy call against Atlanta that lost them for the tiebreak. I'm not going to even go into all the times that the referees made highly questionable calls against the Lions or anything like that. I'm not going into that. This is just the brutal stuff. And then 2020, at Stafford's request, Matt Stafford is traded to the LA Rams for the Two first-round picks, quarterback Jared Goff, and a third-rounder. Won a Super Bowl his first season in L.A. Hey, Lions got to hang a banner saying our former quarterback won a Super Bowl. I've seen that meme all year. Yeah, we can have that discussion another time. Who's the more annoying Lions fan? The move the goalpost guy who believes Stafford still stinks because he couldn't do it alone? Or the we get to hang a Super Bowl banner because our ex-quarterback won with another team guy? Who's more annoying? Send your votes to Midwest Football Podcast at gmail.com. But what do you do about a curse? Well, we could probably talk about that for a whole other episode because if you're a Lions fan, I hope this gave you a little bit of uh, extra catharsis. I don't think that even my host, my co host, Brian, had the first clue how deep and dark this was going to get. Yeah, I didn't know there was going to be like deaths and paralysis and naked guys drunk driving through Wendy's. <laughs> yes, I basically as soon as other NFL teams start talking about curses, pretty much unless you're Cleveland, we win. <laughs> like, hey, Cleveland, Minnesota, Cincinnati, right in. I probably didn't do you justice, Minnesota. So if you got any extra stories for us to add to future episodes, let me know. And I do have one correction from the Honey Bears. They didn't get dissolved around when the Bears won the Super Bowl. They got dissolved as soon as the Bears won the Super Bowl. What? Like, come into the locker room and then like, oh, by the way, thanks for coming, everybody. Here's your pink slip. Literally dissolved as soon as the game ended. That's why the I mean, it's not like cheerleaders get paid jack anyway oh i was looking this up they were paid five dollars for gas five dollars for parking and five dollars for uniform cleaning per game that was it early on and despite that mccaskies did not want to pay up to fifty thousand dollars per season to pay the cheerleaders because they weren't even paying them living wages they're basically just paying them to get to the stadium they they perform for free wow but anyways (sighs) But that's about all the time we have on the Midwest Football Podcast today. Uh, Thank you again to all of our listeners. I hope this brought you some 
clarity and peace as we come into our 4th of July holiday. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks again also to Chris Brandley for our logos, for our composer Raymond for our theme, Running Home. But it is finally time to take this in and hope these curses end soon. See you when we get back out of the locker room next week for our division previews starting. We will see you later. I hope you guys survive the 4th of July with all 10 of your fingers intact. And I miss you already. 